0: Blog Talk Radio.
1: Chatting the Sherry is presented by the writers and illustrators of the future. They have been providing a means for new and budding writers to have a chance for their creative efforts to be seen and acknowledged. Welcome to Chatting the Sherry. Today I'm really happy to welcome back Peter Wax, who is a very good friend to Chatting the Sherry, and our new guest, which is Eaton Collins. They're both authors. They collaborated together on a new book called Caller of Lightning, and we have a very fun and interesting chat that is recorded, so please don't call in. Here they are. Welcome to the show. Hi,
0: Sherry. How are you doing? I'm fine.
1: Can How are, good? are you? Doing
0: good. Oh, pretty good. All things being equal. <laughs> Um, I'm looking to help. Stay on in, so I can't complain.
1: So everybody's healthy where you both are.
0: Yes. Uh yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I'm I'm in Burbank, enjoying the sun, riding from my balcony. Uh, was in Colorado just a couple weeks ago, enjoying the cold, Riding <laughs> from my back deck. So you know, hey, it's just bouncing around.
1: Okay. I can understand that. I, it's very nice. I'm in San Diego. It's very nice here, too. (laughs) Good weather.
0: Um, I'm in Beaumont. Weather is good. Nice and quiet. Nice view of the mountains. Great place to go walking.
1: Yeah, it's pretty up there. Are you in the, like, the, the country part where, or are you in the city area?
0: I'm in the Country Park, uh, about 40 miles from Palm Springs, so I'm um, between Palm Springs and San Bernardino, up towards the mountains a bit. Awesome.
1: There was a, we went to a mountain retreat when I was young with my parents. It was really boring, but it, was, it wasn't it that the mountain retreat was boring. They had horseback riding and swimming and everything it was really fun. But the people there, my parents at the time were in their 60s, and all the people except for our family were older than my parents, like a lot older. So, and it, so there was no one to talk to, even for my parents. It was like they were very nice, um, but they were just they they talked about pinnacles and their grandchildren and the weather nothing other than that it was like very nice people I mean because my grandparents will talk about anything We used to talk about anything under the sun especially my grandpa but my these people just they just wanted to talk about their card game and their grandchildren and that's it i like why are you even up here But it was fun. I mean, but the thing is, is that one day my dad gave us the keys to the car and said, go to Palm Springs and have some fun. (laughs) Well,
0: that seems like fun. Because. What what was that time you were breaking up there? It was just. Uh, how How far were you from Palm Springs when you were there?
1: Not very far. It was maybe 45 minutes. (laughs) <laughs> and we did have fun. We just we like we just had a really good time and then we came back and my pa- poor parents stayed up there and I, I we both said, You should have come with us And he goes, we and my dad goes, We didn't want to mess up with you guys having fun, so we just sat and watched the people play p-knuckle it,
0: What is Pinochle? I've never actually played a game. I'm not even sure how it works. Other than I think it involves cards.
1: It's a card game. It's not one of the games that, I mean, I could play. I never really learned it. My grandparents didn't know how to play it, but my grandparents preferred Canasta, which I do know how to play, and Jim Rummy, which I do know how to play. I never never really learned Pinochle. It's just generational? Yeah. Yeah, canasta is fun. Actually, nobody knows how to play it now, but it is fun. <laughs> but I, I actually don't, and that's another thing. We none of the four of us knew anything about that game, and so, and my dad was pretty good at cards, so he was wa- watching them. And so when we came home, they had taken a walk. They, uh, they, they, they went to the pool. You know, they didn't just. Sit there they were joking but my dad and mom did watch them and I said so did you learn how to play Pinochle he goes you know I thought I could learn every card game under the sun because he was really good at cards he goes, but I can't figure it out
0: <laughs> so Pinochle is not just about cards I used to play like Pinochle euchre, Spades Canasta all I loved just every card game under the sun when I was younger um uh, like late teens uh and pinnacle—it's actually similar to euchre for the East Coasters—in um, that it's a—it's like it's a bidding game and it's a strategy game, mm-hmm. but there's also some social manipulation involved in it, with like bidding and kind of psyching out your opponents um, and you know correctly anticipating what cards they're holding, both as a, a function of like the math of what you're holding. Because in, in Pinochle, you've got, uh, I think it's 20 cards. And uh, so you've got to kind of figure out what you think they're holding, as well as how to manipulate and, you know, throw the bad hands to win the good hands. and it, it, you know, It's a social game. It's, it, it's very much in the, the wheelhouse of, like, spades or hearts or uh, something like that. It's a really fun game. My
1: really. dad said it was more like bridge. That's what he said. Okay. Yes, yes. That makes sense too, Bridge. Which I also don't understand. <laughs> I tried that. I actually had a, i I'm sorry. I just I actually had an ex-boyfriend who loved Bridge, and I did try it, but I just... I couldn't understand it.
0: There's a science fiction author who writes wonderful science fiction, but he'll put like four pages onto a Bridge game in the middle of this alternate history in the past. <laughs> And you can tell that he loves it, and he's really deeply involved in it, and all authors will do that. Like, I'll like I'll sometimes put in a political speech, and I'll actually have the politician give the entire speech. And the poor just go ahead and say, oh, we don't we need the entire thing there, really. A paragraph will do it. But, you know, it's so intricate, and I studied Lincoln's speeches, and his cadences, and everything, and it's like, yeah, we, we're, we're good. <laughs> so I can get that. And this guy, for him, it was Bridge. He loved Bridge. So you're in the middle of this action, political adventure, assassination, technological transformation, history being altered, and then there's a the bridge game. It's <laughs> like, whoa.
1: I know, I know. It's just like, I love, I love murder mysteries and science fiction, one, and one of the people I enjoy reading is Dorothy Sayers. She has to put in Latin and Greek. Uh, I mean, French I'm used to from that period, but And I can... I understand it, but Latin and Greek? Come on.
0: Dorothy Sayers, not that I have a particularly strong opinion, was the single most brilliant mystery writer
1: of all time. I know. I know. She was... (laughs) She was a rote... She was a rote scholar. She was... And she actually was... uh, um, wrote... um, Wrote the thing on the Divine Comedy, the the yeah. book on it. I know.
0: You know what I'm saying? We've all heard the famous saying, Tempest fugit, just ergo carpe diem.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Which yeah. is all the last that I know. Right? Well, Dorothy Sayers innovated. She was an innovator. She um, you know, was time when when Christy and she were were writing, she came up with, to my knowledge, I don't think anyone else has done it uh, people have done it since but not before, um, the world's first murderless murder mystery with uh, the book God Unite.
1: Yeah. There was no murder in it.
0: But it was still a murder mystery.
1: Well, it It was was a murder mystery because well, I don't want to give anything away. Yeah. At the beginning of it You find out someone dies, but it wasn't murder. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, it's 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 pretty amazing.
1: But yeah, I love her. I love. I've read every single Lord Peter Wimsey book and all her other books and all her short stories. I think she's fascinating. I read a, her life story too. I think that when she was in the advertising world and she put me wrote Murder Must Advertise and and just all that stuff is fascinating. I just. You know, look, the reason I get really hot about it is this, Harriet gets asked to marry Peter and this has gone on for six books, well three books, six years, and he does, she does it in Latin, (laughs) (laughs) he asks in Latin, she answers in Latin. It's like the most important part of the series, and it's in Latin. That's what.
0: And everyone's getting a dictionary. God damn
1: it. <laughs> well, the first time I read it, this is what I did. I cheated a little. I went into, um, I think it was back then they had Dalton bookstores. And you know those books, because this is before the Internet. And you know those um interpretation books. So I got oh, I had written it down on a piece of paper and then went and got the interpretation book and was writing down what he asked her and what her reply was. That <laughs> That's,
0: and then I awesome. put the book
1: back on the shelf. <laughs> So I didn't uh, buy it. I was bad. My, my book, my business
0: Because of people like you.
1: Hey. Well, uh, I would buy most books, but <laughs> so why do I need a book on Latin interpretation? <laughs> right, right.
0: <laughs> it, it, it was wiki pre wiki.
1: Uh yeah. It was pre that. It was I mean I if it was a romance language, French, Italian, um, French, wrote Italian, um, French, Italian, what's the other, in Spanish. Uh, I, I knew French, I knew some Spanish, I didn't know Italian, but I would buy the Italian interpretation book, but Latin, nobody, it's a dead language, only people that are in, um, medical lawyers and clerical know, need to know what Latin is. The rest of us, unless you're gonna write a book about any of those subjects, don't need it.
0: <laughs> mm, fair enough. <laughs> I sometimes wonder what would happen. I mean, if the world loses electricity, a lot of people are working books like that. But I wonder what would happen if we just lost the internet. Everything else stayed the same, cars still work, electricity still works, televisions were still fine. But if we just lost the internet, I don't think we'd make it as a civilization.
1: I still know how to go to the library and look something up.
0: You do. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) But people 35 and younger, really? Yeah, that's true. Um, By the way, how many libraries are left that are fully stocked and ready to go?
1: That's true.
0: More than you think. More than you think. They've adapted and kind of turned into community centers. The the type of library you're thinking of, like level three or whatever it is, like the big old ones that receive like Carnegie funds and stuff.
1: there there's our libraries near me. I could, if one doesn't have it, they can send for a book for me and I can get it. You know, it's like that's another thing about libraries. This was pre-computers. You could go and order a book and they would have it sent and then you could check that book out unless it's a reference book and uh, take it home um, and then bring it back when you're done. and it doesn't cost you anything.
0: <laughs> right things a more more telling thing. is <laughs> Without the internet on your phone, no one would know how to figure out how to get where the library actually
1: is. Oh, that's another map. thing. There are no more. Ma- what map. map? We still have the map. We still have the map thing that you used in the car, but yeah. it is in the trunk. I do have to admit. When
0: I was I knew thirty book numbers by heart. Just off the top of my head, 30 phone numbers, and then I had a phone book with the other ones I needed to know. At this point, I couldn't call my parents. <laughs> well, I can call my parents, but that would be about it. I call my uncle. I call my brother. I don't have him memorize his number.
1: That is <laughs> so true. And it's really weird, isn't it? It's because our memories are being eaten away because we don't use them enough.
0: I wonder that yeah, we're replacing with different things. They're replaced with different things. Like, people were complained when I was growing up that, well, you don't know how to use an abacus, and that's really going to hurt you. And No, no, I'm good. <laughs> it, it really hasn't. <laughs> I'm fine. I've lived a quite full life, and many amazing things without knowing how to use an abacus. It's not that I would mind terribly learning how to use one. If anything ever happened to electricity, I've tried to learn to use one pretty quickly. At least. But, you know, we're good. That, that, that knowledge has kind of gone away. Um, right, because uh, everyone knows that step number one, after the apocalypse, when all electricity is gone, is you fashion a rudimentary abacus so that you can begin to engineer new
1: technology. And we need to get the, the astrolabe system. so we can find out where places are by looking at the stars and then using the astrolabe to find the way to get there. That, yeah. the, that was the old people, GPS.
0: <laughs> I think for most people, well... Truth of the matter is, I think recently over half the world's population now lives in cities, which means that if we ever lost all electricity for a short period of time, like a year or two, uh, over half, I think over 60% of the population would be gone in six months. And so I include myself in that number. <laughs> well, life hack for you. Here's how to navigate a city without a map. Every block is approximately 100 on an address line in most U.S. cities. (laughs) So in order to navigate, it's very simple math done with hundreds. So if you're going from, uh, and it's about a tenth of a mile, so uh, depending on the city, depending on the application scheme, if you ignore the street name and just look for the address line, it's very easy to navigate and know how far something is. So like 8,000 west to 8,000 east, 16 miles, almost any city
1: that's interesting. I I I I think it's really interesting cuz it's just like uh one of the, I know a lot of younger people, one of them uh I just turned on to Hitchcock and and Peter Bogdanovich and things. people from the old days. And um she she wrote me an email saying I I really love this movie that um with Grace Kelly and Ray Milland, but I don't understand what the dial M means. I said it at the beginning of the movie, the dial
0: <laughs>
1: when he's dialing the phone and it goes to the M and then the movie credits go that's the dial. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Oh, like she didn't even know what dial is, because in the wow. old days, you had to dial and numbers in order to connect to a particular person.
1: Yeah, of course. And, and oh, that's another thing. My mom used to tease us about that, was that, like, um, uh, it was like uh, they have names of uh, exchanges and then uh, the last four digits of the phone number. And so she goes, well, it was a lot easier for us. It was just the Phoenix Exchange and then 4244. And she goes, we, we didn't have to re- memorize an entire phone number.
0: <laughs> yeah, nowadays, if you don't have 10 numbers memorized, you're kind of screwed. Now, if you want a fun thing, though, in another 10 years, uh, cursive is going to be a secret language to, like, half the population. Cursing? They don't keep cursive.
1: Oh, cursive. I was like, cursing? No, everybody knows how to curse,
0: though. <laughs> so cursing, they're quite good at. Yeah. They're better than I am. Uh, but cursive, you can start writing things in cursive and they'll be like, what the hell is this? And, but the truth of the matter is, who really needs cursive? You're much better off teaching them keyboarding.
1: It's funny because um, when I was uh, working in customer service, I used to... I wrote some of my... Books and my stories, long hand cursive, on a notepad, and I used to like scribble, scribble, scribble. My handwriting was also terrible. So between cursive and my horrible handwriting, they thought I was writing a code or something. What is that? I go just notes. Um, uh, <laughs> I could get away with murder doing stuff like that.
0: <laughs> and once more, back to murder funny thing is, I'm actually independently writing a murder mystery um, uh-huh. that's going to be a homage, essentially, to Caves of Steel, it's a science fiction murder mystery, where the world it takes place on is intimately connected and intricately um, involved in the actual murder itself. You cannot have this murder take place in any other world but the world that I'm creating it in.
1: I am writing a murder mystery that's an homage to this show that I saw when I was a little girl that most people have never heard of, but I couldn't... I've never been able to get it out of my head. I actually can't get a lot of stuff out of head from when I was a little girl. But one of them, was, it, was, it was an English show. It was called My Partner the Ghost. And it's about uh, a detective team, and one of the detectives gets killed, but the ghost of the partner stays and they work together and he actually he and his the guy who died wife work as a team I haven't seen this since I was eight years old I still remember the entire plot line so
0: call I, my the ghost
1: my partner the
0: ghost It's the ghost of like the ghost and Mrs. Mirror from Murder for
1: Mystery yeah but this was before this, well it wasn't before the ghost and Mrs. Mirror the movie but it was before the ghost and Mrs. Mirror the TV series um little <laughs> theme song.
0: <laughs> the, the TV series? The TV series. The theme song
1: for the TV series. Yeah. yeah I,
0: I love like
1: that one. And as much as I liked Rex Harrison, I love. Oh, what's his name? The guy who played the ghost in the TV series, I just adored him. Anything. He was in uh, Night Rider too like, Oh,
0: yeah. Oh. Right now I'm sorry, I still have the theme song in my head. What was name? Yeah.
1: Um, he was so Rex Cr- Harrison? Huh? Rex Harrison? No, no, that was in the movie. In the T V series. Oh, um He
0: was he was
1: he was the boss and night Rider.
0: And we live in the modern world, so it's really easy to just look it up and be done with it. I
1: know, but I actually try to get my mind to remember stuff. I know. That's really old-fashioned and weird. What is his name? He's really a great actor. Oh, uh, Edward, Edward. Edward Mulher. Ugh, can't believe it. it took me that long if we remember it. See, that's what I mean. My memory used to be I can name an actor in a TV series from my childhood in seconds. Now I have to go. Okay, A B C D E. Oh, it's E. Okay. Then I go through every E I know in order to get to. <laughs> That's and how I do it. So that you wanted to
0: write a novel
1: on. Anyway, the, my partner's a ghost is what it's based on, but it's not like that. It's the, it's um, a woman detective um, whose husband uh, dies naturally, and he's a ghost. And he's actually sort of part of a threesome that uh, uh, is part of this crime-fighting team. Um, I don't want to give it too much because it's not out yet, but that's basically it. (laughs) Does that make sense? Absolutely. But, um, yeah, it, it's actually going to be one of. The, I'm writing two books, and they're both going to be series. One is a YA book about um, a girl who moves to a new town and she meets another girl who turns out to be an alien. And that's the series. And then the other series is my, my homage to my partner, the ghost. <laughs> I've never read the series before, so this is like—I'm really excited and yeah. I'm really scared. <laughs> um, so, what's your new book about? Uh, I know you guys are collaborating. Two hundred and forty pages. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry.
0: It's okay. It, it, it's actually yeah. Uh, I'll <laughs> uh, Don't tell the I'll never start reading it. <laughs> I My life, 396. I just checked. Um, what else is better? Yes, <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. uh, basically, it's uh, alternative to fantasy, is kind of what I like to call it. It's where you take a historical event and throw a fantasy element into it, and then you get something grand. Um For instance, a while ago, somebody said, what if the Napoleonic Wars was fought with dragons? And (laughs) they created a very serious series of books about the dragon corps in the Napoleonic Wars, of Britain and France and Russia and so on like that, which is a fascinating concept. This one is a bit more along the lines of, what if magic returns to America, to the world, during the colonial era, uh, essentially the 1750s onward? And how would the world, England, Europe, uh, the American colonies, handle the return of actual magic.
1: That's interesting idea. The
0: Puritans don't take it well.
1: Well, of course not, because they against any kind of magic.
0: Uh, Fairly much. But there is one person who is perfectly suited for this world, whose entire temperament, whose entire being, whose entire inquisitive nature would simply view this as another form of science to explore and go, yay, and that's who the book is about. Benjamin Franklin. About. Benjamin Franklin. This guy just yeah. discovered new things three days a week. The original title. Uh, the original title that we had for it, just to give you an idea for the feel we were going for. Um, it is now called Color of Lightning, but the original title that we were going with was Benjamin Franklin: Wizard for
1: joking. It is about Benjamin Franklin? Oh my God. Well, because he was yes. the most brilliant person in colonial America, but I, that's why I said it.
0: Exactly. Exactly. I mean, if you're going to write about magic coming back to colonial America, Benjamin Franklin's going to be your guy. Oh <laughs> right my now.
1: God.
0: Not center of this.
1: I love that. I just guessed. That is so cool. I never do that. <laughs> How cool is that? Yep, yep. So, well, Isaac
0: Newton was dead by then, so yeah, it had to be Benjamin Franklin.
1: Well, yeah, in colonial America there wasn't that many people at that time. At his, in terms of at many, his no, level,
0: not that many. At his level, honestly, there weren't that many people in the world.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: He's quite often. I mean, we think of him for these other things, because the other things he did were also really fracking cool and amazing. Awesome. And over the top.
1: Yep.
0: But, tend to forget just how smart and world-shattering Benjamin Franklin was as a scientist, a pure scientist, in terms of optometrics, in terms of optometry, in terms of oceanographics, in the charts that we basically have, those maps you see for ocean currents in the Atlantic, uh, that's Franklin's work. Mm-hmm. We've... haven't really updated it since. He pretty much nailed it. Uh, We've obviously filled in the other currents around the world, but he was the first one to say, hey, let's figure out where these things actually go and make it usable. And, of course, in the terms of electricity, he created the field of modern electricity. Literally, the terms we use, negative, positive, am, a battery. I mean, all, well, actually, battery was, to be honest, created by somebody else. But um, most of the terms we use, he just created. This guy was a scientific genius, honestly the only one who probably could be ranked higher than him would have to be an Einstein or a Newton. Oh I was uh,
1: thinking of Leonardo. Oh,
0: uh, Leonardo would have been amazing and he was amazing. I don't want to take, but he just missed the era where there were the tools and the techniques that he really could have taken advantage to push everything to a new level. just didn't quite have what was there that would have actually put him into the top rank. As an engineering genius, absolutely. As an artist, wow. And as a theoretical scientist, he was spectacular. He just didn't quite have the uh, base. And if Franklin had been born half a century earlier, he probably would have also not been able to do what he did. Uh, But Franklin was able to order a lot of his things from Europe that were mailed to him, so then he could proceed with his experiments uh, because a lot of this stuff was already developed. In fact, it was only going to be in another. fact, at the that same time, the first scientific instrument shop was set up by um, James Watt in Scotland. And he literally set up a shop that did nothing but sell specified scientific instruments. The first, actually, the first time anyone ever did that. I'm going to say the first since the Roman, but no. No one had ever actually set up a shop designed to sell only scientific measurement instruments. Uh, But that shows the need, and the need also provided the uh, supply as well.
1: That is really Uh,
0: cool. So so he was born into an age where his talent matched his ability. It would be like if you were born as a programming genius in 1927. A programming genius, or actually 1907. You're a programming genius born in 1907 okay. Okay,
1: there's nothing much to program.
0: Uh, Yeah, I mean, (laughs) by the time you're in your 40s, there'll be some computer. If you get grabbed up by the government, you know, in Project Ultra, maybe. But what if you were born in 1947 as a programming genius? And what if you were born in 1987 as a programming genius?
1: Yeah.
0: And you begin to see how the area you're in really influences how far you can go. Or what if you could sing like Frank Sinatra in the Middle Ages?
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, that would have gone anyway. He would have pr- become, like, a religious priest or something, or a canner or something like that, because he yeah, had that beautiful voice.
0: How far he wouldn't have gone particularly far. He might have been really a bane at a cathedral someplace, which would have been cool. He would have had a fairly decent life, but he wouldn't have been Frank Sinatra.
1: <laughs> uh, I don't know. He had the ego. <laughs>
0: Actually, I always assumed that that was where we got the song way Yeah. Actually, I can see Frank Sinatra becoming a priest, and then the becoming pope. Or literally it uh-huh. really damn- I
1: Well, I, I think Frank would have found a way to do it because he was just a very determined man.
0: He'll do it his way. He did. Yeah.
1: He did. He was a he was a brilliant singer, and but he was also really a brilliant strategist for his career. I mean, he had a lot of help with his agent and people like that. But I'm just saying, if he didn't have that, he term- mar- huh? Well, he
0: was a marvelous actor, also. He
1: was. He was a really wonderful, and and you know what's really interesting, and I've always found it really interesting, how some singers without any training. Can become great actors like Frank, and then some singers just don't have it. It's and they put and they, and put, and they have all actors, that interpretation stuff, you know. So they do know how to act, but they just can't do like Frank did.
0: <laughs> how many, how so many actors, singers?
1: Yeah, that's true. That's because they don't have the voice. That's not because they, if they had the voice, they probably could. But if they ha- if they don't have the voice, in me. There are some people that are great actor-singers, singer-actors. They do both. Julie Andrews.
0: Oh, good lord, yes. But, Modern era, that would be Anna Kendrick.
1: Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, absolutely. It just is. Um. Or um. What's her name? Uh, Ga- Lady Gaga. She proved herself as a really good oh, actor. Yes. Yep. Um. Yeah. yeah so it's just it, it 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 just determination, talent, luck, all that. So you never know, Frank Sinatra could have made himself really big back then. <laughs>
0: well, the thing is, there's only so many people that could hear you sing or speak. In fact, interestingly enough, Benjamin Franklin was the first one to actually calculate how many people could hear one speaker speak, uh, given the strength of his voice. It was during the Great Awakening, and uh, was it... Oh... Uh, uh,
1: this is actually
0: me losing. A very famous George uh, Winter came to America and he was actually a very powerful preacher and it was when you could actually cross into America, back to Britain, and it was when you first had that true melding of the, of the cultures. And so the Great Awakening was actually an Anglo-American event in the 1740s. And this guy could speak, and Franklin was curious how many people could actually hear him speak and being Benjamin Franklin and a brilliant mathematician, he calculated it. And he actually went back to an area until he could no longer hear him distinctly. And then he calculated the route, and he figured if that whole thing was filled in. one speaker could be heard, if everybody was really quiet and it was no ambient noises other than the speaker, by like 40,000 people. Wow. Uh, but that's if all the conditions are perfect. If there's, like, drizzling rain, if there's, like, a, r- a river nearby... If people are murmuring and talking, that gets cut down massively.
1: That's interesting. The,
0: the, very best, the very best you can do. For instance, when Lincoln gave the Gettysburg Address, the best, the largest number of people that probably were able to hear him, and even he had a perfect speaking voice, he honed his speaking voice perfectly for, for the age before uh, public speaking, the age before there was uh, electronic speaking devices. Uh, Lincoln did not have a deep uh, bass voice. He had a high tenor voice because that cut through the air the best. But it was a Civil War battlefield site, and they were still doing a lot of things, and it was a lot of work going on, so maybe 20,000 people. But that's why he made his speech so short. He did not mean to give that speech to the people at Gettysburg. Uh, if you ever think about it, uh, Lincoln, also a brilliant person who understood his times perfectly, gave a speech that would fit perfectly on the front page of every newspaper in America. He didn't give that speech to 20,000 people in Gettysburg. He gave that speech to 20 million people uh, Northerners the next day. Yeah. That's why he made the short.
1: Yeah, newspapers were very powerful.
0: Yep, newspaper and telegraph. He basically. He also ran the first modern campaign in American history, not based upon going around and giving speeches to crowds. He actually based it on telegraph, sending his supporters, getting the rail schedules, uh, shifting uh, using the telegram to shift resources from one section to another we're winning this district, get these people out moving to that one there Um, very much like Barack Obama in that sense or to be honest, Donald Trump two modern campaigners that really understand the era that they're dealing with in terms of how to get elected
1: I think one of the things interesting about the period that you were talking about before the colonial era era era, was that the people that knew how to get everything out and again it was Benjamin Franklin because he was a newspaper man was that after they wrote the Declaration of Independence they those, that's why they had the copies of it made was so it would go throughout the entire colonial area and everybody would read it uh, that was brilliant and that was Benjamin Franklin that's why there
0: are 200 copies And that's why we always celebrate our Independence Day two days late.
1: (laughs) Because it took time to make up the copies to send it to everybody.
0: (laughs) Exactly 100% correct. If You go back to the Congressional Record. I do this with my students. I have have them read the actual Congressional Record as a primary source document from uh, the Continental Congress. And it says on July 2nd, 1776, we declared independence. The motion to declare independence was passed and approved. Which then gets to the, why the hell do we all say it's July 4th? And that's when the um, committee finished the alterations to the declaration and sent it to the printer. And the printer put the date that he got it, not the date that they declared it. And since he got it on July 4th, we've been celebrating our independence say two days late ever since. Did you ever see the... um, Cinco de Mayo. At least they celebrate Cinco de Mayo on the 5th of May.
1: (laughs) Did you um, ever see the movie 1776?
0: It is one of my favorite Me too. Movies. And it's
1: the, uh, when he's arguing Thank with Jefferson... Franklin.
0: At the Franklin of book in my head is the Franklin from that
1: movie. Oh, I know. I can actually see it. He, he did it so perfectly. Um, but the part where at the end when he's like uh, having an argument, is it's so funny with Jefferson about pronunciation of a word. and uh <laughs> He says, I'll talk to the printer afterwards. I mean, that's like one of the best lines. <laughs> Most people don't catch that's that. <laughs> <that's your job. laughs> I'll talk to the printer. Um, <laughs>
0: yeah, the guy who played John Adams was also perfect for that role.
1: William Daniels, yeah, I that's love good. him.
0: It's Jim Franklin, did you hear what I had to go through last night? Here, job. John I'm Philadelphia your
1: voice is quite fierce yeah uh, well, that was about the part where he was talking about how uh, Benjamin was going to act Ben Franklin was going to actually be known as the person who did everything for the war Thank that he that he used his electric, uh, his electric uh, to, um,
0: to um, go to the ground with electricity yeah. and George Kaufman <laughs> appeared from the ground on his horse I love that thing. And the three of them went off, Franklin, Washington, and the horse, and directed the entire revolution.
1: I like it. I like
0: it. That's like the best part. That's actually from from an Adams letter. A lot of 1776 they got from the letters. Franklin, Adams, Abigail Adams, all those uh, love scenes between uh, John and Abigail Adams essentially comes from their letters that they wrote back and forth.
1: Yeah, that was truly a love story.
0: It really was. Um, In fact, historians are rather annoyed when Abigail and John actually got back together again because they stopped writing letters. And we get so much useful information about what's going on in in Congress and in Europe and with this negotiation and that negotiation and what's going on in a home life here and there simply because they would write these enormous, like, three-page letters every day to each other, like diary entries. Written
1: by brilliant people to each other. Well, it's also, Abigail was brilliant, and they were best friends, and that was one of the reasons why they wrote those huge letters, because John really didn't have anybody else that he could really express himself to like he could to Abigail. At least that's what, that's the way I understood it when I read it in history and took history classes and liked that stuff. (laughs) Um, okay, so, mm, so basically the basis of the book is that, uh, magic came to America, Benjamin Franklin is the, is he the lead character? Uh, yes, and the story is definitely the lead character,
0: he is the main yeah. character, yep.
1: And, and magic comes to the world, actually. And so, is, is there anything that, like, what is, is, like, is it fighting the Puritans, or wh- what's the basis? What well, the,
0: the basis is, this, this is the, this is the set, up, kind of the setup book for uh, the world, uh, Arcane America, that Eric Flint and Kevin Anderson have also written books in. Um, there's a book, Council of Fire, that takes place after our book, uh, that was released by Eric Flint and Walter Hunt. And there's a book called uh, Uncharted by, by Kevin Anderson and Lewis Clark. Uh, I'm sorry, and Sarah Hoyt about Lewis and Clark. Um, uh, and, and the idea is that in, in, in 1759, when Haley's Comet comes, something happens, and we're not going to tell you exactly what because that's part of the, what our book is about. Uh, something happens, and magic is brought back to the world. But the world is sundered. You only have, uh, right now, North America, and there's a giant veil, like fog, and you, nobody is able to pass through it to get back to Europe or anywhere else. So you have North America. Well, in pre seventy-seven, or they don't sail out again, <laughs> right? And and uh, and magic is back. So our book actually starts with the Kite and Key experiment and uh, tracks over the following seven years until the Night of the Comet. So it explains how this world came to be. And uh, it, it's very, very historically accurate, as you've been hearing partly in the conversation with the Bacom. Oh, Congress. my God, it's so historically accurate. But it's, it's actually technically a high adventure because there is a lot of fun action-adventure, magic battles, some really super epic magic battles, um, and we, we don't want to spoil who the bad guy is, because figuring out who the bad guy is is kind of part of the fun. It's what you describe as a secret history, cool.
1: because
0: for most of the book, uh, everything is, takes place, you could actually assume that it actually took place in our timeline, because none yeah. of it takes place out in the open, it's all between the lines of history. Exactly. And then uh, and then right near the end, they okay. shatter the secret history and turn it into an alternate history.
1: Cool. And what is the name of the book?
0: Caller, of Lightning. Yes, that's C-A-L-L-E-R, like to call down. Color of Lightning.
1: Interesting. And when's it coming out?
0: Tomorrow. 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 And how tomorrow, do we tomorrow, 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 the tomorrow. For the listeners for the listeners who are not hearing this today, um, this came out on June second. And uh,
1: to, <laughs> and where is it gonna be available? Is it everywhere?
0: Everywhere. All major booksellers, uh in hardcover and cheap.
1: Cool. That's published
0: exciting. by Baby and Bacon does excellent ebook as well as hardcover. So Amazon,
1: Barnes and Noble, uh, your local stores. Cool. And um, if someone wants to like get in touch with you guys, uh, is there a website or is there any social media? Could you give that information so people can reach out and say hi after they read the book and. And, and try to figure stuff out with you or just to say hi?
0: Absolutely. You can always tag, for, for Peter, you can always tag me on Twitter and I'll say hi back. Uh, I'm at Peter J. Wax, W-C-S. Uh You can find me on Facebook. Uh, just do a search for Peter J. Wax and uh, they're on my page. I'm a bit slower on Facebook, but I try to answer everything. Uh, or you, um, also, What was that? I am on Facebook as well, Eitan Collins.
1: Can you spell that? Because it's unusual.
0: Uh, Eitan E Y T A N. Last name K O L
1: L I N. Thank you. <laughs> and, um, are you guys on Instagram or, um,. Any of the other social
0: media? I am not. So I have an Instagram, and I've got a whole bunch of friends apparently on Instagram, but I haven't actually used it. Uh, I've got maybe a couple dozen posts on it over the last 10 years or whatever. Um, So I do have Instagram And it's it's, uh, I don't even know Uh, Peter J. Wax I assume Um, I'm looking And I plan to start using it I just haven't been very good about actually starting it
1: You should use it It's really cool
0: Eh you know us old folks No it's it's, you know I, I get it Uh, It is Peter J. Wax. Yeah, yeah. Both Pinterest and and, uh, Instagram have been interesting to me, but I've been kind of in hermit mode for the last couple of years, and I was kind of tackling building online presence, because there's this whole thing as an author in in the modern era, you really have to build your communication channels out, you you have to uh, be able to communicate with people, and so uh, you know, I know. Aton was doing conventions for a while, uh, then building out of Facebook. Uh, right. <laughs> right, Um, I was focusing on Twitter as my main, my kind of main thing, and then I was planning to go and start to bump up my Instagram and my um, <coughs> uh, Pinterest. But there's a certain amount of. of You know, I I dive in, and I start creating, and I start working on research and writing and working on the next thing, and I just, I forget to use the creative energy to go post on social media, because I'm using it to create the next project. And then all of a sudden, I blink, and I'm like, oh, man, I'm meant to be posting, and I haven't posted on anything in two months. What happened? (laughs) So that's kind of the line that you have to write, you know?
1: See, I'm weird. I have everything scheduled. Because otherwise, I won't have anything done. I, I have I have a day that I work on. I have a day... I work on my writing every day, but I have one day a week that's only for writing. I, ha- I, I work on social media every morning, but only like two or three days, I'll work on it all day. I mean, otherwise, I wouldn't have any time to write. I would have no time to record, you guys. I would have no time to... There, there was just not... Be enough time in the day for me to actually have a personal life, um, <laughs> so that's how yeah. I do it.
0: Yeah, it, it that that's. I wish that I could do that. I think that I only have so many organizational bones in my body, and so I use them to try to structure the projects I'm working on. Uh, I'm not the most organized person I keep 50 things in my head at once and just assume everybody can keep up with me uh it's the worst to so try to work a project with me <laughs> can tell you i'll be like here's 50 things at once and then i'm gonna go quiet for a month oh well, yeah uh, be like okay i needed to work on this 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 and this and here you go and then nothing did you get it nothing you need me to change those things nothing Are those things good nothing uh, are you still alive?
1: <laughs> and yeah. then he
0: comes back and he's like, this was great, this was great, this needs to be safe, let's yeah, do this, do this other thing. <laughs> and it's yeah. like, okay, but have you considered it is very <laughs> hectic and then it is very quiet.
1: Oh, that's funny.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm a deep focus worker so I, I shut off everything and just go in and work what I'm working on for 10, 12 hours every day until I feel like I'm done and I need to connect with everything else around me and unfortunately, you know, like we're saying, people that work with me can suffer sometimes from that. Oh. It really wasn't so bad. And <laughs> it's a great book, so I'm not gonna complain.
1: Well, I can't wait to read it. Come on. I you have you have the stars one of my favorite people in history, so I'm I'm gonna buy it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know something else if you you want to post it out there on the Bain website if you go to um, let me find it here really quickly bain.com forward slash chasing your tail uh, there is a short story up uh, to promote the the novel that I wrote about uh, Ben's daughter Sally Franklin in the months before the comics so it's a little side story that happened right before the third act of the novel.
1: Cool. Okay, I'll check that out. Um, we've run yep. out of we've run out of time. I wanna thank you both for coming on the show. I, I hope you guys had fun.
0: Absolutely. <laughs> I had a blast, thank you.
1: Thank you. Uh, thank so Much appreciated. Thank you both so much. Um, and thank you for chatting with Sherry.